Greetings again, everyone. As you may know or may not know, we are refugees from the high country of Colorado. Uh, Mr. Guy Carnes and Larry Watkins and I had an opportunity to take a few days off and go backpacking. And we were sleeping, what, two nights ago, I guess, or three, up at 11,800 feet in our sleeping bags on little pads of foam about an inch, or maybe even less, mine felt like half an inch thick. And during that week, three things became terribly important to us in the following order. First was air, and second was water, and third was fire. You know, every time we would start to set up camp, the first thing we would want to do right after we got rid of our packs and got them off our back was to start searching around for firewood, not carrying axes or even any heavy knives or having no chainsaw or anything else. You had to break off the wood with your hands. And a lot of times, if you came to a campsite that had already been used by other people, the wood was pretty scarce, and you couldn't... Uh, just shoved down a big standing piece of dry timber by yourself so you had to scour around and you would go about the business of trying to light a fire. It rained on us about twice, maybe three, up to four times a day, every day. It rained just like pouring water out of a boot one night. The forest was damp, the trail was muddy, and all of the wood was so spongy wet it was almost impossible to find any reasonably dry wood. Being a former Cub Scout, knowing how to start a fire, at least I thought I did, with matches, it was rather disconcerting to go through at least two or three of the little book matches one after another with what you thought was dry tinder, meaning the dead needles of a pine tree, underneath a lot of little tiny twigs laboriously broken off, and on top of that would be some larger twigs, and you're striking match after match after match, and it goes out or burns your thumb, but it doesn't start the tinder. Sometimes the little needles seem to explode, a little smoke comes up, and a moment later the fire goes out. So, not to be outdone, I reach in my pack and I get my little cylinder. We all divided up exactly three cylinders of Coleman fluid for our little backpack stoves that we had that you pump up like a lantern, but it burns so you can cook your freeze-dried or your reconstituted food. I don't know who constituted it in the first place, but we had to reconstitute it. And that meant just pouring in water and let it sit there a while until that funny-looking yellow powder became eggs. So finally, I took my Coleman bottle and I poured a little liberal dose of that fluid on there and just struck a match and left back. You know, and I've got a fire. Didn't feel quite like a Boy Scout. I wasn't able to get a fire by rubbing sticks together. There was no sun, so I didn't have a magnifying glass anyway. I was about to wear out all of our matches, and so sometimes, as a matter of fact, most of the time, I had to resort to Coleman fluid, and it really does leap up and burn very, very quickly. I began to think about these three elements and began to realize that in the Bible, those three elements of air and water and fire are used as analogies of the Holy Spirit, but they're used in two ways, especially fire both for a good and a wholesome purpose, and for a very evil and a very detestable and repugnant purpose that you wouldn't want to have happen to you. And it's like that in the case of man. Man uses fire for practically everything. If you were to research the subject, you know that you cannot determine what is fire. The least one of us or the least education could simply say, well, fire seems to be the combustion, whatever that means, that means to burn. 
with explosive force or to burn. It means the combustion of any given substance with oxygen. Big deal. Is that scientific enough for us? It's the best the dictionaries and encyclopedias can come up with. They don't really have a word that in one word they can define to us what it is that happens that causes the explosion of heat and light and energy giving off gas and resulting in a pile of ashes and turning solids, even eventually solid rock, into a liquid or a gaseous state. So when you look into the encyclopedias or the dictionaries about fire, you're left with the following definition. Fire is the heat and light that comes from burning substances. Isn't that marvelous? That's what fire is. When you look up water, you will be told it is a certain number of atoms of hydrogen combined with oxygen, and that in certain states it is liquid, or it is gas, or it is a solid, and you'll be told how it acts. If you look up air, you'll be told it is virtually the same substance as water, except with other gases added in, and you will be told how it acts. I like to concentrate on fire today because of the fact that the Bible concentrates on fire. I was amazed this morning to find how many, literally dozens and dozens of times, the word fire is used in the Bible, both for a good and for sometimes an evil purpose. The very first place we ever read the word is in Genesis 19, verse 24. And this time it comes from God in the form of punishment. Genesis 19 and verse 24, the first place in the Bible where the word fire ever occurs. Then the Eternal rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah. This wasn't rain. This wasn't little droplets or globules of water. But brimstone. You ever looked that up? Brimstone is not a rock or a stone that you go out and mine or that you pick up somewhere. It is not carbide, which when you put water to it, it forms a gas, and you can actually, you know, the old miners had carbide lanterns. Carbide gas will explode. Some people have made clay cannons and toy guns out of carbide. It's a natural rock, kind of like a soft sandstone that can be mined. No, brimstone is not that. It's not a rock. The original Hebrew word actually comes from the pitch of a cedar or a cypress tree. So actually, by analogy, brimstone is phosphorus. Phosphorus, or an explosive, bituminous, pitchy subject that will flare up and burn and fire from the eternal out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities. So this was the first example of virtually the firestorm that destroyed Tokyo in World War II, which was a result of dropping incendiary or magnesium-type bombs, or perhaps an atomic weapon because God caused the very fire from Almighty God, which is a miracle, to destroy those filthy cities. Now, why did he use such a horrifying method to obliterate the entire population of a city? Contemplate that for a minute and wonder why it is at the very first place in the Bible that the word fire is ever used. It is used in the connotation of Almighty God wreaking wrath and vengeance upon a completely perverse homosexual community of sodomites and of queers, of transvestites, of deviates, of every conceivable description, having to reach in and virtually rest loose or pry loose with a spiritual crowbar. A handful of people, actually one man, even his own wife, was so totally 
I guess you would say, affected by the or influenced by the environment that she longingly looked back against God's command and was turned into a perpetual pillar of salt. Her daughters were going to be sacrificed by Lot to some casual strangers, even though they were virginal girls. He said, take them, do what you will, just take them out in the street and have a gang rape or whatever you would like. And Lot is called Righteous Lot. I've always pondered that as to what it is that Almighty God requires of different people at different times, in different ages, and in different circumstances. Lot's gesture of allowing those people access to his daughters is not something that we're told to follow, certainly, but it does instruct us as to the degree of affectation, of influence, almost like a possessive grasp that society can have on us. It can possess us, it can enfold us, it can manipulate us to the point that we become like our society and so like the community around us and the lifestyle of this world that it's very difficult to see that we're really different from the world around us. Lot was different because he wasn't queer, to use a word that queers don't like. I'm like Jack. There are none of them here to throw stones today. I don't know of a single queer in the congregation. If I did, I'd preach endless sermons on the subject. But I don't know of anybody like that. So I'm probably safe. I'm not going to be hit with a shower cap or a grape or a wet sponge. And I say that facetiously. But no, Lot was normal. He was natural. He was a normal heterosexual man. And I take it that his daughters were normal, and so was his wife. They were not perverted sexually but the entire city was. Remember the lengthy argument, as it were, between Abraham and God who said, what if I find a hundred? What if fifty? Please don't get mad. What if only ten? What if only five righteous in that city? Will you spare the city for those five righteous' sake? Quite an analogy there about what we know is going to happen to the United States of America and the British Commonwealth of Nations and what is going to happen to the Western world in World War III, which is destined to come probably in less than a decade. I don't know if the world is going to go along with any sort of equilibrium for another ten years. Almighty God is going to allow our people to be punished. I was dumbfounded when I was told by the pastor of our small group up in Denver last Sabbath, to whom I spoke, that Denver has a huge, con a huge uh, not congregation, but a huge constituency, I guess you would say, or percentage of the population involved in politics, the police force, professionals like lawyers and doctors who are homosexual. They told me there were many, many gay bars in Denver. I didn't have the faintest idea that was so. Only about two to three, four years ago, whenever it was after we began anew here in Tyler, I learned that Dallas, Texas has a large homosexual community. They even have voting power and the closet queens, as they call themselves, in some years ago now, had come out of the closet and were exposing themselves as being homosexuals. Famous court cases have been tried all over the United States to prevent men from marrying men and then hiring a surrogate mother to bear a child and let the two men raise the baby as their own. Now, if you can think of anything more perverse and uglier and more bestial and obscene than that kind of filth, then please let me know what it is because I can't think of it. 
That is the ultimate to me. They might as well lead a horse to the altar or come trotting along with a dog and say, please issue me a marriage license. Almighty God hates seeing a human being made in the image of God, seeing a human being who is destined to judge angels. Now, you think about that for a minute. I mean, an angel, if he were to appear here, we'd all be under the chair, wouldn't we? I'd be down under the pulpit, you'd be under the chair, be a blazing white light and a radiant being in a white linen gown of some sort or, or a robe maybe, and his face would be burning like the sun and he would speak with a voice of thunder and it would scare the daylights out of us. I've never seen an angel. I think I've seen things angels did. I think I've been present when angels interfered in the course of human relations or Perhaps there have been cases where people have heard a voice, at least my mother felt that she did when Beverly was about to be killed by a huge painting and it woke her out of a solid sleep and a loud voice shouted at her about three times, move Beverly, and finally she did and a big painting came crashing down where the baby's head was. She's never been able to explain it till the day she died as being anything other than an angel. We are to judge angels. A human being made in the similitude of God is to become a member of the very family of God, and he is to live his life or her life perfectly. On the issue of doctrine, we must have no error. We must be able to look our antagonists or other people, as Jack was mentioning, some of the Church of Christ ministers and the Sunday preaching, teaching people, look them in the eye and say, I have in my mind only truth. In me is no error. It is just that I don't know many things. But what I don't know is more truth. What I do know is the truth of God, and what I know so far is the truth. And in me dwells no error, no conscious error, no error that I know of. And that's the way we ought to pursue the truth. We know there is a great deal of truth we don't yet know, but we should not know anything that is an error. Now, Almighty God was so angry, so incensed, so outraged that these human beings made in His very image would be so perverse that it would be less than animals, because animals don't act like that, that in the first place that you ever read of the Bible, read in the Bible of fire, it is the account or the analogy, you might say, of Gehenna fire, of the method that God is going to use to punish a human being with the most horrible punishment that you can imagine. Now, all of us are sensory, temporal human beings, and we can hurt in a very selective way. You can prick our finger with a needle, and it hurts. It makes the nerves jump, the arm jumps, the shoulder jumps, the feet get in motion, we leap back, the lungs pump a little air through our vocal cords, and we say a word we've learned. If we were French, maybe we would say something else, but we're English, and so we say, ouch. Maybe we would say, ooh, or we, or eek, or something, but we say a word, ouch. Because we've been hurt, some little bitty nerves in the dermis, or the epidermis of the skin attached to a little group of nerves that flow on up to the arm that go on completely through the body to the brain have communicated to us that a part of our body suffered pain. Now we have millions and millions of those little nerve endings and they are on the top of our head and they are on the bottom of our foot. And there is no pain that a human being can suffer that is more excruciating 
than to have every nerve ending on every part of the body suffering excruciating pain at the same time. You know, when you dive into a swimming pool, or you dive into a lake, or you dive into a river, you get wet all over. Water comes into your ears. Water may even go up your nose if you don't hold your thumb over your nose and your finger. The water just completely saturates your entire body. It gets into every pore. That's why God calls that ultimate punishment the lake of fire, because it will be like a sea or a lake, and every square inch, every millimeter of the body and the skin of individuals thrown into that fire are going to feel, with every nerve ending they possess, excruciating pain at the same time. Now, the God we worship and the God we serve uses fire as both an example of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of God, and he also uses it as a type of Gehenna fire, the ultimate punishment that is to come upon man. Air is used as a type of God's Spirit in John 3, verses 1 to 8, where Jesus likened air, or the wind, to spirit beings who will be born of God, and he said, you will be as the wind, invisible. Water is used as a type of the Holy Spirit in John 7, 37 and 39, where Jesus said that when we are converted, when God gives us the Holy Spirit, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, this spake he of the Spirit, which they were yet to receive. And the scripture very clearly shows that Christian deeds of kindness, of empathy, of sharing, of giving, of forgiving, of thoughtful acts toward other people, an outpouring of your concern flowing out of your personality, out of your li of the eyes and of your mouth, of your relationship with another human being, is like the flowing of a gurgling, trickling, or perhaps roaring, or happy, happily bubbling little brook or a stream. We passed I guess a couple of dozen such little brooks and streams. Unfortunately, in the high country today, you've got to be careful because man has succeeded with his chemical compounds and his pollutants, and because of animals that are herded, and we saw cattle practically all the way to about the 9,500, 10,000-foot level before we finally got up in one valley and up on a kind of a tableland of some lakes and got away from where the cattle were. And because of that, and perhaps nature's reaction to man's pollutions, if you're not careful, even in the highest part of the Rocky Mountains, you can drink water out of what appears to be a pristine mountain stream and end up with the most roaring case of dysentery you ever saw. And one man, Al Knopf, Dr. Knopf, who was built, or used to be anyway, like a weightlifter, just went down, I mean, just wasted away as a result of getting that type of thing. So we take these little bitty pills that were issued to the troops in World War II. I guess they've got iodine and something else in them. I guess they're, they're fairly harmless. But every time you would get even one quart of water, you would have to put the little pill, wait three minutes, shake it, wait ten minutes, and even slop some around the outside, they tell you. So you make sure and do not get any of that water, even that high up in the Colorado mountains, for snow melt coming down in beautiful little brooks, and you shouldn't drink it. And that kind of makes me mad, you know, to think that you get that far away from humanity, and you still don't dare drink the water. But does it ever teach you, with somewhere close to 60 pounds on your back, at an altitude that a lot of people find very uncomfortable, even in an airplane, many people cannot attend the Feast of Tabernacles at a 6,000-foot level. How would they fare with 60 pounds on their back walking at 10,000 or 11,000 or 11,800 feet? So believe me, when you take a few steps, your lungs say, I need some more of that air. 
And after you take a few thousand steps, every pore in your body says, I need some more of that water. And after you've done that for hours, your stomach says, i got to have some more of that food. I don't even care if it's reconstituted or freeze-dried or not very nutritious. By this time, you're ready to gnaw bark or to eat grass or something. So it's good for you because when you go backpacking and you're carrying everything that would guarantee your survival on your back, all your food, your bedding, your tent, your sleeping bag, and so on, you know that you're reduced to the absolute bare essentials. And there are no comforts, and there's no luxury, and for days you don't even sit on anything that has a back to it. It's a luxury to get a, a piece of wood and lean up against a stump or a tree, because it's the only time you will ever have anything to rest your back. And the first thing you do is build a fire. Now, controlled fire can be the most delightful thing. You know, if you have a home that has a wood-burning fireplace, in spite of the fact that the energy-conscious people tell us that they're very inefficient, that nearly all of the heat goes right out the chimney, people want a wood-burning uh, fire, fireplace, because they like to look at the fire. They like to sit around it. It's a community gathering place. There's one right behind me here. We light it up in the winter sometimes. We have a stack of wood right outside the door. We don't want it out here on the hearth. We don't want it burning on the carpet. We don't want it going up the walls. We want to control it. If you ever stop to think about all that is done with fire, many of the things you are wearing were made with fire. Many of the things you eat are cooked, practically all of them. These glasses were made with fire. It was certain grains of quartz sand was melted down to become a liquid that were ground to become glass. The vast petrochemical industry that results in perhaps 54% of the entire working class in the United States being employed by that burgeoning industry results from the use of controlled fire. From fire we get warmth, light, food, we get dwelling places, we make implements, we heat metals. We pound, hone, shape, and bend those metals, depending upon their malleability, into various instruments. We fire clay and make pottery and dishes and glass. We use fire as energy to drive our machines, when you talk about a piston not firing correctly. Or we burn coal or oil, and we convert water to steam, and we drive gigantic locomotives or huge ships at sea, jet engines, turbines, huge diesel engines to power locomotives or great aircraft. All of them are driven through the sky or across the land or through the sea as a result of controlled fire. By the use of heat and fire, we separate metals from their raw ore, melting them right out of the rocks. We blend various metals together. We produce chemical changes in materials by varying degrees of fire. And, of course, all synthetics, many building materials, metals, fabrics, are all produced by fire. Certain kinds of coal melted down to become coke, which is merely a kind of a cinder, and then heated up at a superheated temperature, much hotter than coal itself can be heated to, produces the melting point of pig iron and results in the production of steel and the addition of certain of the other metals, molybdenum and so on, that goes into steel and stainless steel. Gasoline, liquid nat natural gas, petroleum, will almost explode. There are certain temperatures at which certain things will burn. For example, if we will turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, Almighty God uses six different types of materials all of which have a different flash point 
or a different, shall I say, kindling point or temperature, and these are the analogy of a Christian life. Now, some of these are practically worthless. He called them carnal. He said they weren't quite yet completely converted because they were guilty of party strife. He said, I have planted, verse 6, and Apollos watered. So there he gives the analogy of a farmer planting a seed and growing a crop. But he said in verse 9 that we are God's building. We are the laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. Paul delighted in using analogies. And this is an analogy of a construction or a house or a building, a public building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder or like a contractor, I have laid the foundation. Paul was jealous for the fact that when God sent him, and that's what an apostle meant to an area, and God bore fruit through his labors and his sacrifices, when some Johnny-come-lately came along and began teaching contrary to the pure truth the apostle Paul had given, he became a little bit upset. He thought, this isn't right. I laid the proper foundation. Along comes some subcontractor, jury rigs, builds an inferior piece of construction here, a flimsy ramshackle home out of undried, non-killed dried uh, lumber, full of knot holes, the studs aren't close enough together, the nails are crooked and rusty, and it's very poor workmanship and very sloppy. In other words, because of ego and vanity and party spirit, would-be little ministers and leaders wanted to rip off a part of the congregation for their own purposes, whether it was ego or whether it was money, is really un unimportant or irrelevant. And Paul continually had to remind the people whom God called through his ministry of the fact that he was the original one who brought them the truth, and they should not be exploited by others who came along after that original conversion. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds thereon. I was really talking about the church, but let's talk about our own personal, scriptural, spiritual construction or building of our own character on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, I possess one little ring of gold. And I have a cheaper watch that is very, it's dipped in a little gold uh, lame or whatever, and you can rub it off a little while, it'll wear completely off. Otherwise, that's the only gold I own. But it's very expensive. Every day when I hear the business news, gold is going up and down around the 412 or 418. I don't know where it is right now. It was up to above $600 an ounce, wasn't it, at one time, or almost 700 and it's on back down. Well, for years it was $35 an ounce. When we come through Idaho Springs and along some of those little remote villages and towns, the old, old mining towns up in Colorado, all over the mountains, way up there, thousands of feet as far as you can see, are the tailings of these mines. And they say they're literally miles of network, just like gophers in the soil, that go where you can go from one town to another and never see the light of day. Where these men way back in the 1800s and during the gold rush days were mining that precious substance. There's still a lot of gold there. 
eventually became far more expensive to get it out than the worth of the metal because of the number of ounces per ton of ore that they were mining. Now, today, some of those old mines have actually gone back into business, and they're mining once again in some of the old gold towns and even finding enough gold because of the value of it in the tailings of the waste piles of ore they used to throw away that they're making quite an industry out of that today. How would you like to own a hundred pounds of gold? What do you suppose that would be worth? If the church had in a vault down here in Southside State Bank, in our own safety deposit vault, in great nice bricks, one hundred pounds of ninety-nine point nine nine pure gold, what do you suppose that would be worth? Well, what if we had a hundred pounds of silver? It says the next building material is silver. What would that be worth? Only a fraction of what the gold would be worth. But still, it would have a lot of value. What if we had in our safety deposit vault 100 pounds of chalcedony, of garnet, of jasper, perhaps of emeralds, and even diamonds? Semi-precious and precious, in some cases, diamonds, emeralds, rubies, very precious stones. A hundred pounds of such stones. They would be worth an enormous amount of money, wouldn't they? Now, if we were to take those materials and subject them to fire, superheated fire, the kind of fire you get from a Coke oven, what would happen to the gold? Nothing. You wouldn't lose an ounce. You would not lose a centillionth of an ounce. You wouldn't lose a bit of it. It would not burn. It doesn't have a flash point, just a melting point. It wouldn't turn to gas or ash. It would just flow. And instead of being a little loaf like a brick, it would suddenly just seek the lowest level and flow just like water. If there had been the slightest little bit of impurities in it, however, a little bit of dirt, some other kind of a little fleck of mica or granite or something that had gotten mixed in with it that hadn't quite melted, your fire would completely purify the gold and burn all of that out of there. It can actually be scraped off the top of a huge vat when they're using molten metals, and it's called slag in the case of iron, or dross, D-R-O-S-S, in the case of silver or precious metals. Same comment on the silver. Silver, a little harder than gold, a little higher melting point, and not quite so malleable, and yet it would still melt and it would be purified of any impurities. The precious stones, well, wouldn't hurt diamonds at all. Wouldn't tarnish them, wouldn't change their color, except under a, a temperature that would be virtually impossible for a man to produce, although man now is virtually, uh, I think, artificially managed to reproduce the conditions under which pure carbon is made into diamonds, and there is a type of diamond, I forget the name right now, that is actually made out of carbon under such heat and such pressure that they practically duplicated the process that takes place in the heart of a volcano naturally, and you can buy that kind of a diamond, much less money than a natural diamond, and yet it is exactly as brilliant and is the same identical chemical substance. It is a real diamond, but it's man-made, and so they don't cost as much money. But they're just as beautiful. So the vanity of people to have the natural one instead of the one that man has been able to reproduce, I guess, causes them to buy the natural ones instead. It says also, wood, hay, stubble. Now, stubble is like you've already reaped a field of wheat or a barley, 
and you go out, and they're just left above the ground, just below the blades of the reaping machine, a little bit, maybe three, four inches or less, of a piece of straw sticking out of the ground. That's called stubble. And they can go out, and they can actually mow that and cut it. And I don't know if cattle will even eat it. I don't know what stubble is really good for, frankly. Maybe they can use it for thatching. Maybe they could use it to stuff in a pillow. Maybe they could use it for a mattress. But what's, what stubble is good for, I don't have the faintest idea. It's almost like a powdery substance. And, of course, it would have a very, very low flash point or burning point, And it would just flare up almost like an explosion. Burn more rapidly than yesterday's newspaper. Stubble. Burn very quickly. And it's almost completely worthless. Hey... Well, we went by several fields up there, many, many acres. Hay was lying in bales in these great huge rolls. I don't know how much they cost for one of those rolls. Does anybody? Uh, a bale, probably about $5 a bale by now. I don't really know. I didn't keep up with it. A few years ago, it was only about a dollar a bale. I'm kidding myself. $5 a bale is low. Is that right? Anyway, it's very expensive stuff. People are growing grass, and they go out and mow it and bale it and roll it and sell it for an awful lot of money. So we're looking at several hundred acres in a beautiful valley up in Colorado, of grass lying on the ground. And they're going to let it cure and dry and roll it up and sell it for cattle to eat. You strike a match to that bale of hay, it'll catch fire and burn so brightly you better jump back as you get your clothes on fire and burn very rapidly probably if it's quite dry. It has a certain amount of value for cattle food, but what can man do with hay? Not a whole lot. Again, he can stuff a mattress or a pillow with it, but you can't build a home with it. You can't make clothes out of it. You can't eat it, at least you shouldn't. I don't know if it would do you any harm or not, probably would. But now precious stones, silver and gold, they're of great value. Wood, well that is the most valuable of these three inferior substances. This building is largely made of wood, it's a frame building. It has a little bit of stone veneer, but it's wood. Wood is very, very durable, very pliable, very beautiful. It has all sorts of different grain. Wood produces every type of rosin and paint and turpentine, you can imagine, out of the trees that we get. So wood is a certain, has a certain value. Isn't it interesting that 50% of these materials will burn up and they are gone? 50% of these materials will either be changed slightly in chemical appearance or substance, that is, you can take pure white quartz and you can put it in a hot fire and you can burn it purple or a dark amber, and it's not quite as pretty. Maybe it's more beautiful to some people, but it is suddenly changed in its chemical composition slightly and is burnt, and it appears to be a different color. Silver and gold are not harmed at all. They're merely changed in form and purified. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he is built thereupon, he will receive a reward. Now, this is the difference between salvation by works and salvation by grace. I repeat for the umpteenth time, you can't earn salvation by 100 lifetimes of 100 years each of keeping the Ten Commandments flawlessly in the spirit as well as in the letter. You can't do it. Salvation is the foundation. If any man have Christ, he is saved. Christ in us, the hope of glory. If any man hath the Son, he hath life. 
1 John, the fifth chapter. So the foundation that Paul laid is salvation. That we have. Now, when you're converted and when you're baptized in water, and when you put your hand to the plow and you begin to live the Christian life, you begin to learn some of these doctrines, you begin to have the problem, the temptation, and certainly Jack was right to speculate. I wanted to raise my hand and say, right on, the Sabbath is the test commandment. It's the one that he used to test or prove them whether they would walk in his law or not. And it always has been the biggest test, and it still is today. It still is today with people who are coming into the knowledge of God's truth, will you take the step involving your job or whatever it is, involving your very livelihood, and it does mean that in many cases, to keep God's Sabbath day, or will you not? So, salvation is free. It is God's loving gift. It is given to us when we repent and we're converted and we receive God's Holy Spirit. For some of us, that may have been a long time ago. It may have faded into the distant past and almost seems like we're tired old Christians just kind of waiting it out. But really, we need to be continually renewed and to realize that we are building a material structure, as it is, on top of a spiritual foundation. How would you like to have stashed away as mattress money a million dollars in thousand-dollar bills? And then along comes a fire and burns up everything you own. Of what value is your million dollars? But if you had a million dollars in diamonds, or you had a million dollars in solid gold bricks, and your whole home burnt down, it might just be a pool, it might be a funny shape, just kind of like a flat thing with a lot of, you know, uh, things sticking or clinging to it or whatever, and big pockmarks and holes in it where the substance is mixed in with it and burnt up. But you could go in the ashes of that burnt-out home and retrieve every ounce of your gold, couldn't you? I want you to think about an example. Let's turn to Daniel, the third chapter, verse 22 and 27. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Most people don't know of them by their Hebrew names. They know of them instead by their pagan Babylonian names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They incurred the wrath of a pagan king. This pagan king utilized fire as the ultimate form of torture and punishment for his victims who went against his regime. Now, in 1984, a phenomenon that is age-old is going to be reenacted, is going to cause goosebumps and chill bumps on people as they are going to trace by their motion picture cameras people scooping some fire out of a perpetual or a perennially burning fire at Mount Olympus in Greece and begin to sprint and run along the roadways carrying the torch and they will run and I guess they'll bring it on a ship because there isn't any land bridge they can't come around you know and be on dry land all the way from Mount Olympus or wherever it comes from in Italy to Los Angeles where the Olympics will be held but that is a carryover from the most ancient rituals of fire worship of the ancient Egyptians the Persians the Babylonians and the Greeks in those days, way, way back there, in the days of Pompeii and before, even in the days B.C. and for many centuries A.D., many communities, especially in ancient Rome, uh, Rome or, or Greece, I should say, and Italy, had a place where there was a communal fire. And that communal fire was kept burning all the time. 
people would actually bring horseback or in carts or whatever fuel for that fire, whether it was coal or oil or whether it was probably more likely wood, and it was burning. And if people wanted a fire in the home on the hearth with which to cook or to keep warm, they would go to a central place and take a fire brand and come back to their home because it was too much work to rub sticks together or to take flint and rock and to make tinder and try to spark, you know, sparks into the cotton or the tinder, whatever they could use, as they used to do in the old flintlock rifle days with gunpowder. Or they didn't have the idea yet, hadn't invented yet, the idea of a magnifying glass to cause paper or tinder to start on fire. How many of you have heard, you probably have, don't raise your hand, of the Vestal Virgins of ancient Rome? Well, the word Vestal or Vestal or Vesta meant the hearth. And these were pagan goddesses, young women who were designated to spend their lives as a, quote, virgin, end quote, and assumedly they were. They were the world's first uh, caricature, perhaps, of the nuns of the Roman Catholic religion because they were to remain celibate. And their entire job was to serve the hearth of the fire, the sacred fire to the gods of ancient Rome. The help of the state was dependent upon the health and the preservation, the continual perennial burning of the fires. And all these Vestal virgins ever did was to tend the fire, take out the old ashes, feed the wood in, sweep it and keep it neat and clean, and keep the fires going. Perennial fires have been known all over the world. Here is ancient King Nebuchadnezzar with his fiery furnace. Notice that when the word was brought, after his decree, and some of these princes of the royal family, which they were, the Jews, refused to bow down to that pagan idolatry, mentioning, are you willing to die for your religion or not, which Jack mentioned in the sermonette, let's ask, yeah, but die how? I mean, it's one thing to be shot, it's a terrible thing to be hung, but how bad is it, if you're going to try to choose how you can die, to be thrown into a great big furnace burning up into the 700 degrees Fahrenheit or so. The king made a decree, they reminded him. Verse 10, you made a decree that every man that should hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that was like a great, you know, blast of the trumpets and so on, a kind of a hail to everyone at a certain time, like an announcement, they're to fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falls not down and worships, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. All right, that would have directly broken the first and the second commandment. It would have been idolatry, and these young Jews said, we're not going to do it. There are certain Jews, said these politicians, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. So then Nebuchadnezzar, now he was the kind of a man, who, one, leapt to conclusions. Number two, he was very susceptible to influence from the first people who reached him. And he was in total authority and total charge, and he had an incredible ego. Without ever calling these young men in, without ever asking the question, did they or didn't they? And if so, why? Is this true? Were there other witnesses? These politicians, for their own purposes, because they wanted to get rid of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they wanted to exalt themselves and feather their own bed and get themselves right up next to the king. And a way that, to do it was to give the axe 
to the people who were actually governing and ruling under Daniel. Can you imagine that? Taken there originally as slaves, yet because of their intelligence, because of the ability they had, because of their knowledge, perhaps of astronomy, of music, of literature, of language, they represented a kind of a brain trust. And before you knew it, because they simply handled human beings far more expeditiously than did the ancient Babylonians. And so Daniel was like a kind of a Bernard Marouk to several presidents of the United States. He was like a right-hand man or an advisor and virtually helped run, and I'm sure he did for the entire seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, that he ran the Babylonian government. These three princes were like lesser, uh, you might say, vice presidents under Daniel who ran the entire government. So these men wanted to get rid of them. The way to do it was to outrage the king. Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, he gave them a chance. You can have a chance. Prove to me that you'll be willing to do it. Fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if not, you will be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? So they said, we're not careful, meaning we're not afraid to answer you in this matter. If it be so. I love that statement. That helps me a lot. Because their statement was not, God will deliver us no matter what. Their statement was, I've made my stand. You see, I have made my decision. God may save me, and God may not save me. But whichever way it goes, I'm going to tell you something, King. I will not bow down to your idol. No matter the outcome, you cannot tell me that these men had the kind of faith that they knew they would be delivered out of that fiery furnace. They didn't have that kind of faith. Do you have to have that kind of faith? I don't think so. You may not know what the outcome is going to be. If it be so, our God, whom we you able to heal me, he was able to heal my mother many years ago, but didn't, and she was allowed to die. He's been able to heal anybody, and he is able to do anything that he wants to. God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, so that potential was in their mind. Be it known unto you, O king, Kings don't like to be to uh, spoken to that way. It is not really healthy to talk to a king from a position of strength. You don't say, I've made up my mind. I have taken my stand. And you can't change me to a king. Because off of the head. We will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead of smiles, a look of absolute rage and hatred. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Now, I don't know if that's exact. We could argue about the number of degrees centigrade or Fahrenheit. But anyway, they were supposed to pile on about seven times the amount of fuel and get the big bellows going and get this thing so hot they didn't realize what would happen with the draft. There was a starvation of oxygen. And, of course, when they opened the thing, the oxygen, the wind just blew in, probably just blew some of these guys right off their feet, drew them right into the fire, and burnt them to death, some of the servants. 
So they commanded the most mighty men in the army to gather them up there, and they bound them in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, loaded them up with clothing, and probably tied the arms around them or whatever, and cast them into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was exceeding hot, the flame of the, fly, of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Interesting analogy, isn't it? The ones who were the agents to martyr or to put to death God's servants died in the doing of it. By the very death, they were trying to heap on these innocent men. Very interesting to think of that. That sometimes it's good to know that the very fate which is planned or wished upon God's people by Satan's forces in this world befalls the people of Satan who are trying to persecute the people of God. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery or the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and of course you would be, rose up in haste and spake and said to his counselors, did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they said, Oh, it's true, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. That was the original, not the son of God. They didn't know that it would be right, but the Hebrew is like a son of the gods, because Nebuchadnezzar was pagan. He didn't know about the one true God yet. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, he began to acknowledge now that their God was the High God, come forth and come hither. So they came out of the midst of the fire, and of course you know the rest of the story. It said in verse 27 that there was no power of the fire to either singe the hair of their head, or their coats were not changed, nor the smell of fire even passed upon them. An amazing example. Do you believe it? Did it really take place? Are we reading history or are we reading fable? Now, by analogy, let's suggest that every one of us with our platform of Jesus Christ of Nazareth are building a Christian life. And every weekday, workaday experience that we go through, every Sabbath day, every holy day, every time we get a tithe check, every time we are hurt, every time we're talked against, every time we get angry at somebody, every time we have an argument, every time we're hungry or thirsty, every time we're upset, every time we have a headache, every time we have a sleepless night, how we react to it, how we interface and react with each other is a part of what we are building on that foundation. How would you like to have if it were your very own flesh, a kind of a special flesh that were like asbestos. If you could have material, temporal form and shape that was fireproof. Now, back when I was in the Navy, the guys on the Cardox truck had hanging up there in the fire station great huge suits that looked like a, a man from the moon because they didn't fit, they were sloppy, and they were gigantic with a very thick glass, I don't even know if it was glass, maybe it was some other material, faceplate. And they could get into that thing, and it was a complete suit of asbestos. I guess about that thick. I don't know how many hundreds of degrees temperature that could take. But a man could actually put that huge, big, formless suit on, and when it was completely zipped up and with the overlying flaps all in place, he could walk into the midst of a burning airplane 
and pull a burning man out of the midst of a fire and suffer no harm himself. Fire departments have such suits, completely fireproof. Now, I'm not fireproof right now. I found that out several times, and I keep trying to light these fires, and I'd say, ouch, and I'd jump back because the match would not catch the twig on fire. It was trying to burn my thumb. My thumb was dry, you see, and the twig was damp or wet. I am not fireproof. I don't like to be burnt. I remember this last few days up there being burnt on several occasions. I would try to dry out my tennis shoes and my boots and a little, you know, ember from the fire would come out there and burn a hole through the top of my tennis shoe. So now I've got to get new tennis shoes. And it burnt the tongue of my boots, and I've got to get new boots. And uh, sometimes you would hang your underwear or your parka a little too close, and it's made of a kind of a nylon and a piece of the fire comes flying out and burns a hole about that big in the back of your parka if you've ever had that happen. We had to be very careful about how close we pitched our tent because if the fire sent a spark, it can ignite the tent. The tent burns and because it's a kind of a petrochemical derivative of some kind, a kind of a plastic, and it'll burn very, very quickly. I cannot survive a fire. My clothes will burn very quickly. My hair, my eyelashes, my eyebrows, the hair in my ears, all over my body, it's going to burn off real quickly. And then before you know it, I'm going to blister. I'm going to turn black. I'm going to start to burn. By the time that happens, I'm already dead because I'm still trying to breathe, but there's no oxygen, just gas and flame. And I have suffocated, but at the same time I'm suffocating, I am in the most excruciating pain you can heap upon a human being. But oh, what it would be like, since I know the time is going to come when the entire world, the whole world, I mean from New Guinea and New Zealand, to the top of the Rockies where I just came from, to the Bahamas, to the farthest little rocky outcropping at Pribilof or up in the Aleutians, is going to melt like a lake, a sea of burning flame. It says in Second Peter that the entire elements of the earth, every rock, everything is going to be on fire with fervent heat and is going to melt. Have you ever wondered whether or not this occasion of the fiery furnace is not an analogy of God's church walking about with one like unto the Son of Man standing right there with them, the other people actually being burnt up, but these individuals walking about and suffering no harm whatsoever and not even the smell of singeing or burning material or smoke on their garments when they come out of this fire. The time is going to come when God's people will either be fireproof or they will be burnt up. What you have to realize is there is no escaping the lake of fire. It's coming to all of us because the world is going to burn. But the point is, by that time, we have to be fireproof. And the way to get to be fireproof is to build the kind of character which is likened unto gold, silver, or precious stones. Fifty percent of the building materials mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3 are fireproof. Now, they can be changed in form and nature, be changed in color, but all they are is purified. They are not destroyed. God says over and over again that he is going to kindle a fire. Malachi 3.2, God is like a refiner's fire. In Matthew 3.10, 11, and 12, 
is the sermon of John the Baptist who said, and of course many people of the Pentecostal religion have completely perverted that, that he said, Almighty God is going to send the baptism both of the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he says the wheat or the chaff or the stubble he will burn up, but the grain he will gather into his storehouse or his barn. So he's likening the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water, that's cool. It's refreshing. It feels good. It doesn't harm you. It is a symbol of cleansing and of purifying and of the washing away of your sins. When you're lowered into a tank of water, that's a refreshing experience. What if that were a lake of oil burning at about 400 degrees? It would be another matter, wouldn't it? A lot of us, I think, tend to take the idea of Gehenna fire a little lightly. We don't like to think about it. Some people, I think, accuse us in the Church of God of not having any power in the pulpit because they say we don't believe in an ever-burning fire. You will see me trying to correct this man time and again, although they have the power, remember, to edit the tape. I will almost guarantee you that every time I got the better or I got the correct rejoinder or I said what I should have said, you won't see it at home. And every time it will appear that this man got the upper hand, you will see that on the program. Because when you do three and one-half solid hours and walk away, then they get to work with the scissors and the tape. There's no telling what's going to come out later. Time after time, when we're talking about ever-burning fire, about Gehenna fire, or about an ever-burning hell, I would correct him. I went through the meaning of the word Gehenna. He was talking about, then you don't believe in everlasting punishment. I said, yes, I do believe in everlasting punishment, but I don't believe in everlasting punishing. I said, punishment is death, and it's death by fire, and you're going to be burnt up. And it says the wicked will be ashes under the feet of the righteous. You will be completely destroyed. You will be gone. And the death is an excruciating death being thrown into a fire. But when you're dead, you're dead. You're gone. You're destroyed. You're burnt up. You are no more. I couldn't get the man to agree to that, of course, but at least I was able to say it time and time again. If I thought that by proper diet I could actually be eating certain substances that I could take into my mouth, which was going to result in making the skin and the tissue of my body, my fingernails, my ears, my hair, fireproof, guess what I would be eating every day? I would be eating a fireproof diet. But now spiritually I know that there is a spiritual diet that I can be imbibing into my mind that is going to make me fireproof. I know the fire is coming, and I know I'm going to be in it. It says so very clearly in Second Peter. It says the entire world is going to burn up. Here's an analogy or an example. By that time, we must be fireproof because Almighty God is going to try us by fire. Remember when Jesus said, I am come to kindle a fire on earth and talked about men being divided even among members of their own family? I am come not to bring peace, but he said in Luke 12:49, he was come to kindle a fire on this earth. Now it says in 1 Peter, the first chapter in verse 7, and I'll turn to that, that this life, after you know the truth and yet you're still here in the world, you're still a human being, is like a fiery trial. It says that we are kept by the power of God through faith, verse 5 of 1 Peter 1, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, 
wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through various, and that means many, manifold of every type and form and shape, temptations, that the trial of your faith, you can say trial of the body of belief, you can say people will challenge what you believe, what you know, they will try to poke holes in doctrine, or they will try your faith regarding the Sabbath, or the holy days, or tithing. They will have every kind of an argument. But it calls the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. Now, if it is even more precious than gold, and gold is that one metal, the superb and very virtually priceless metal of those building materials of which we read that will make it through a fire, and if your character is of even more value than gold, then isn't it that Almighty God wants us to be the kind of people that it does not matter with what we are threatened, it doesn't matter what kind of a temptation comes along, what kind of an argument, what kind of a false teacher, what kind of a brother or sister within the church who is upset and wants to gather us in because we love to have empathy and people understand our point of view, so we begin our little clique, our little whispering, our little attitude because we want others to share that attitude because that justifies our attitude. Whatever that temptation is, it's just like flickering tongues of fire, licking away, trying to consume, trying to burn. Though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let's notice what it says in Hebrews 1 and verse 7. Now, this is not saying that the ministry, in this case meaning just preachers or evangelists, are like uh, fire. It is talking about the servants of God who are angels. It says in Hebrews 1 and verse 7, And of the angels... He saith, who maketh his angels spirits, or winds, as it says in original Greek, and his ministers, meaning and his angels, another word for them, ministers or servants, a flame of fire. In Hebrews 12.29, at the end of the book of Hebrews, another very interesting scripture on the same subject, Hebrews 12 and verse 29. I want to go back and read up to it just a little bit because it says in verse 18, the spiritual church with which we have to do is not a physical thing. And remember, again, I think maybe even the pagan idea of a perennial fire came from the fact of the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember that one of the plagues that was put upon Egypt was fire running along the ground. You do remember that. Remember also that for 40 years, 40 years of days and nights, every day they saw a big column of smoke, and every night they saw what caused the smoke, a pillar of flame, a boiling fire right over the tent of the tabernacle, so that for 40 solid years the very symbol of God was a symbol of burning flame. When God first appeared to Moses, he appeared in fire. He was in a bush that was burning, and isn't there a symbol there? Isn't there some understanding there? The fact that God was not destroying the bush. The bush was on fire. But it wasn't being blackened and made ugly, it wasn't being charred, and it wasn't being consumed. But it was flaming, and when Moses turned aside to see this, God says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, and talk to him 
out of a young shrub, a big, maybe blossoming kind of a shrub, who knows what kind of a bush or a shrub it was, that appeared to be burning. When they came to Sinai, and they were given the laws of God, what was happening on the top of the mountain? A fire, like a volcano, boiling flames and huge black columns of smoke. And the earth was quaking and shaking. It was like a mountain blowing its top, like we've seen recently in Washington State. But you now, in the spiritual administration of God's Spirit since the time of Christ, it says in verse 18, you are not coming to the mount that might be touched. You don't have a mountain you can go and look at and handle and take pictures of and climb and collect rocks and say, I have a piece of rock that came from Sinai and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness like a black cloud and the rumbling of a thunderstorm and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And it said in verse 21, The terrible sight was so great that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, but you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, and that means exactly what it says, of just men made perfect. You have a spirit. There is a spirit in you. That spirit is as spiritual and as non-physical and immaterial as any angel or as any part of God himself, because God gives it. It is the spirit in man. It is your personality. It is your psyche. It is your motive. It is your nature. It's your subliminal nature. It's your hidden inward secret part. It's the impulsive part. It's the intuitive part. It's the first impression part. It's the part in which you really live in your private deepest thoughts. We all have, in a sense, two lives we are leading. We have an inner thought or a consciousness about some things, and we have an external consciousness or an approach to other people or to certain things. Sometimes we have deep, secret thoughts. We call them compulsions or fantasies or daydreams. But those are you. They come out of you. They dwell inside of you. You produce them, the spirit that is inside of you. God is wanting that spiritual essence that is in us, blended with our mind, to become a perfectly formed and shaped being which is capable, just like that man in the Navy, of walking around in the midst of flames and suffering absolutely no harm. The spirits of just men made perfect unto Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and of the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. Now notice a little later on, it says in verse 28 to conclude this very powerful statement of Scripture, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace... That means take it easy. That means have mercy and tenderness and love and compassion for each other, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. When God is near, things catch on fire. Things burn. Things get hot. Things get very bright. When God was on the mountain, the mountain quaked, and it was black, and it was burning. When God was in the bush, the bush was burning. 
when Almighty God comes, it says the brightness of his coming is so great that human beings cannot look on him and live. What happens to evil, wicked men when God comes? It says in the book of Malachi, while they are standing there on their feet, the sockets of their eyes will disintegrate and the flesh will literally peel off their bones and the skeleton will collapse in a pile of charred ashes. God is coming like a hydrogen bomb. God is coming like little boy and tall boy came to Hiroshima and Nagasaki when in the flash second of one split moment 92,000 human beings were incinerated. Their very bodies became part of an atomic explosion so that indelibly impressed upon a stone bridge over a little brook in downtown Hiroshima, Japan, was the pattern of a beautiful floral kimono. The lights and the darks were indelibly stamped in solid granite with which the bridge was constructed. The photo flash of a giant nuclear bomb borrowing the very energy of the sun and converting it into an explosion had photographed through the disintegrating body of a lady standing looking at the heavens and wondering what that thing was in the parachute. Her kimono and imprinted it in solid granite. But the woman, well, she became part of a cloud. She was just wafting away. She was no more. Can you imagine? You've seen pictures of the cloud. Does the cloud look like 92,000 human beings? Does it look like all of their dwellings and shops and stores, all the commodities and the rubber galoshes and the canes and the glasses and the neckties? Does it look like all of their homes and all the vegetables? Does it look like a very city to the rock bottom foundations of enough collections of hovels and huts and buildings and apartments and great big downtown stores to make up home for 92,000 human beings? Man has been able to borrow the energy of the sun and to unleash it upon other men. When it says in the book of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire, and behold, he comes with fire, and every eye will see him. You better have fireproof eyes and a fireproof body and a fireproof spirit. And then, just like the three Hebrew princes, you'll be standing there and walking about and your body will suffer no harm. Just an analogy, I realize. Just an analogy, I agree. And yet it's good to be reminded that whether or not you are cast into a lake of fire, because that is the kind of a final fate you deserve, remember that unless we are changed into a spirit being at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, when God is finally finished with a world that needs air and needs trickling brooks and running rivers and needs wood and hay and stubble and needs foodstuffs and the green grass and cattle that eat it and people that eat the cattle, when he is through with all of that, and now it is time for this earth on which we dwell to be the very headquarters of a brand new universe governing family which is going to launch itself into outer space in all directions, perhaps build new worlds, perhaps colonize forever and ever, will there come a time where you will be assigned your sun and your solar system 
and your Eretz, your earth, and you will go to that earth and you will shape it and form it according to a pattern or a plan that you have learned from God, and you as a very member of a family called Elohim will begin anew the same creation, the same plan, the same pattern. Will you ever make a man and a woman in your image? Is that what is ahead for us? One wonders. We're only given a little glimpse, it says, through a glass darkly. We look through a keyhole. But it does say at the beginning of that time, after the earth has become no longer wood and hay and stubble, but only gold, silver, molten metal, rock, precious stones, non-combustible materials. No more air. There will be no day and night there. There will be no atmosphere. Neither, it says very clearly, will there be any more sea but just a different kind of a spaceship. Not spaceship Earth with its envelope of air protecting human beings, but a different kind of a spaceship with a brand new purpose in the entirety of the universe. Well, you know, you cannot walk away from God, and it is awfully good for you once in a while to walk away from man, to walk away from your own things, and to get so far up there, as I did on one moment when you could just be alone and look around at nothing but what God has done and see, as far as the eye can see, nothing that man has touched, as far as you can tell. Nothing that man has done. And just say to God, how great is your creation and what a little clod am I. And realize how big and exalted and God is and how tiny you are, I'll tell you. It's worth every step of the way to have the worshipful experience of a few moments at 11,800 feet near a big snowfield, looking at nothing but lakes and God's creation and acknowledging how little you are and how much you need.